Anyone here feel like they haven't had enough rejection this week? Anyone? It's like, uh, you know, people come out to your morning tea, they said, hey, how you doing? How's your week? You just go, well, it would have been really good if I got rejected a few more times. Um, it's pretty crap, actually. Everyone's kind of accepted me and loved me. And You with me? Anyone like that? No? Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about rejection. Um, and I want to ask you the question, how do you handle it? How much does it hurt you? How does it hurt you? Are you a rejection avoider? Um, are you someone who says it doesn't hurt you and it does hurt you? Um, are you in a season at the moment where there's no rejection happening at all? Uh, what if you actually had some? What if you were rejected by someone that you deeply care about? Rejection is something that's really deeply personal and deeply hurtful to many of us. Um, and the drive for acceptance uh, is a pretty common one in humanity. I'm not going to say that everyone here is driven by that, but a lot of people are driven by that. The struggle, though, is that you actually can't follow Jesus without having to deal with rejection. And that's what I want to talk about today. Rejection, you have to deal with it. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying you have to get over it. I'm saying you're going to have to deal with it. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to deal with some kind of rejection. Now, a quick caveat, kind of qualifier. Look, I think some Christians get rejected because they're idiots, okay? I'll put that out there. Now, I'm using the term idiot affectionately, okay? Uh, I'm not, like, not in a big, kind of, big time condemning way. It's just like, you know, like you'd say to your friend, don't do that. If you do that, you're an idiot, all right? And I think there's some Christians who get rejected because they're idiots. So let me give you um, a good definition of, uh, of the word idiot. And here's how it goes. An idiot is someone who acts in a self-defeating or significantly counterproductive way. Does anyone know any Christians that act in a self-defeating, significantly counterproductive way? Oh, you might. Hopefully you do. Are you okay? Some of you just kind of, are you allowed to call people idiots in church? I don't know, but I, the word fool comes up a lot of times in the book of Proverbs, which is probably the similar way to what we would use the word idiot now. Some people in the Christian faith, in the Christian circle, don't seem to realise that you don't get a Victoria Cross in the Christian life for being repulsive all right, and offensive. Has anyone noticed that? Um, you know, there's some people who are just outright offensive and irritating. Um, some Christians are like that. Some Christians are not particularly good friends and they're not that loving. All right? And what Christianity does at some level is it provides them the opportunity to hide in behind Christianity and say, nah, the, the gospel's offensive. And I just go, nah, well, there's a lot of people who would say the truth about Christianity is offensive, where I'd go, nah, it's not the truth, it's you. You're the one who's offensive, the way that you handle things. It's a bit like, uh, if any of you know of uh, Westboro Baptist Church in America who picket military funerals over there and they actually said the Victorian bushfires over here in Australia kind of happened because Heath Ledger was in Breakback Mountain. That's a pretty, pretty accurate prophecy. <laughs> it's like, well done. That's good. Yeah, so God's going to torch the place because a, a guy was in a gay movie. Um, and it just goes to show that what actually we can get trapped up in sometimes with Christianity is it can, we can end up in the place where we use the message as an excuse for the way that we're acting that's not particularly helpful. Is that, are you all with me on that? That's kind of what I'm saying here. Um, it's, it's, nowhere, it's not even close to it, but it's almost, it's got some similarity to the whole thing with ISIS. You know, people say with ISIS, ISIS is a place where criminals can hide and they can do what they really want to do. That can happen in Christianity, can't it? It's like it can be a place where offensive people who are not good at being friends and they're not very loving, who like to be divisive and judgmental, can hide and have some kind of ideology that supports their crusade. Um, so you can get rejection for that reason. That's not the kind of rejection I'm talking about today, and I'll refer to that a whole bunch of times. But the reality is, is that you have to reckon with rejection if you're going to follow Jesus. Because you know what? There's going to be times when you're following Jesus where it gets really, really lonely. And some of you might go, oh, hang on, it doesn't actually get lonely because you've got the body of Christ and you've got brothers and sisters that are part of God's family. But you know what? Anyone here who's experienced rejection knows that it doesn't matter how many people are around you. The experience immediately after being rejected is one of profound loneliness, even if it's not true. You with me? That's just the reality of it. Um, and following Jesus is going to mean that at some times you're going to be rejected and you're going to experience that sense of loneliness. 
So how do you handle that? Well, hopefully we're going to get part of the way there today. So if you've got your Bibles there, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6. We're going to go from 1 to 30. Um, and I'm going to read through. So if you're happy to read on the screen and lots of text on a small screen doesn't give you a headache, um, you can do that. Otherwise, you can read your, your device or Bible or photographic memory. He went away from there, Jesus, and came to his hometown. Where was his hometown? Come on, you're all smarter than that. Where was his hometown? Nazareth. All right, good. If you didn't say Nazareth, you said it at the same time as other people who said it, so that counts. Uh, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, let me just make a quick note about Nazareth, right? Nazareth was some kind of country hick town, okay? Almost like Meringan Den. <laughs> like, seriously, like Meringan Den's got to be the smallest town in Australia that has an east and west, isn't it? It's just like, where are you from? I'm from East Meringan. I don't, I don't care, all right? I don't care whether it's east or west, you're from Meringan Den, all right? It's a nice town. Okay, but it is smallish. Now, Nazareth, the really uh, interesting thing about Nazareth is the town of Nazareth actually doesn't get even mentioned by anyone in antiquity, in, in history, until about two centuries after Jesus' birth. All right? And it was a guy called Julius Africanus. There you go. You'd like a word like that, wouldn't you? A name like that. Julius Africanus. Uh, so there was no mention of it so basically listen this is what let me tell you what Nazareth was Nazareth had about 500 people in it okay and it was an obscure hamlet of earthen dwellings chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside with a total population as I said of 500 small place cut into the hillside obviously there's a synagogue there Jesus is there and he's teaching and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And you hear that and you're going, fair enough. No one got called after their mums, right? No offence, mums. But no one got called after them. They got called after their dads, right? So when they're saying, ah, son of Mary, it's kind of like a schoolyard kind of bully, kind of teasing almost. And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon... Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. Quick note, this is the only time in all of the Gospels where it says that Jesus is amazed by something. And he's not amazed by their sin or their evil or their disobedience to him. He's amazed by them not believing who he was and he went among the villages teaching and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread no bag no money in their belts but to wear sandals not to put on two tunics how many miles he put on a tunic this morning <laughs> Royce he's going I didn't is it no so the only thing makes it worse is if it's lilac a lilac tunic that's that's not a good look <laughs> Uh, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, listen to this. There's lots of good things that's going to happen on this trip, but listen to this. And if anyone or any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now... What's fascinating at this point, I'm going to read, we haven't got up to 30 yet. What's fascinating at this point is, John, is Mark hasn't finished telling the story of the disciples being sent out and coming back. And he's going to whack another story right in the middle of it. And it's a story about how John the Baptist died. Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, actually gave five verses um, describing John the Baptist's ministry. And he's now going to give 16 verses about how he's going to be executed. Really interesting. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod, Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. 
because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. An amazing kind of psychological kind of thing going on there for Herod, isn't there? It's like, I like him, but I don't like him. He irritates me, but I want to hear him, and my wife wants to kill him. And that was, you know, interesting nighttime, dinnertime conversations. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, yeah, this is not like pole dancing at the local gym, all right? This is, this is a pretty special dance. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Now, what's interesting about that statement is Herod actually doesn't have the authority to do that. Okay, and what he's about to offer her is something that he's not allowed to do. Only the Romans could actually do it. Um, and she went out, sorry, whatever you ask me, he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He can't do that. That's not his job. So it gives you a bit of a sense of what's going on at this party. Uh, things are just getting a little bit out of hand here. Uh, and probably a nice little mixture of alcohol and sex, probably, a sexuality, which... I mean, that doesn't happen anymore, but it used to. And she said, um, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, sorry, he, didn't, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. That's just macabre, isn't it? Uh, What does mum say? Ah, thanks, you know. (laughs) Like you got a dude's head right there, you know, on a plate. Um, When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And now here's the bookend to the story for Mark. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that that they had done and taught. You see that? So he started this story, Mark, about the, the apostles going out. And apostles mean sent ones. They've been sent out by Jesus to do some stuff. Wax this story about John the Baptist in the middle and then bookends that we're saying. And then they came back. So what I want to look at today is I want to look at three things. Uh, we can see in this text a, a rejection at home. We can see rejection for doing good. And we can see the ultimate rejection, which is execution. I'm not going to read that one again, but look at what happens to Jesus. He shows up in his hometown and he starts teaching. And hometown's kind of meant to be the place where he actually gets his support, right? But he's not getting his support from his hometown. Now, Christian culture is particularly good at making up pithy little sayings, all right? Which express a useful truth, but often express an error also. Or or at the very least, they're a little bit messy and a bit untidy. And I'm going to give you one that I think... um, Christianity has kind of come up with which expresses a valuable truth but it's a little bit messy here it is preach the gospel and if necessary use words preach the gospel and if necessary use words have you heard that one before now it's what that saying is really saying is this that Christians need to live out what they say there's no point just saying something and not living it out is that is that a true statement yeah okay so as far as the statement goes, if it expresses that Christians need to live out what they say, it's a worthwhile statement. Is everyone with me on that? Here's where it gets messy. You will never, ever be good enough to convert someone by your actions. Okay? It may happen in extremely rare occasions, but you'll never, ever be good enough, right? You know why? Because you can't be gooder than everyone else all the time. Who here knows there's a whole bunch of people out there that don't have anything to do with church and they're way better people than a lot of people you find in the church. You with me? So if if your deal is, and sometimes I think the church kind of does this, the church gets in this vibe where they're just kind of going, we've just got to out-good everyone else. So let's go and do all these social justice programs. Let's go and do all these programs and we're just kind of going to out-good them. And when they see how good we are, they'll see how good Jesus is and they'll miraculously, we'll have revival breaking out. Now, do I think it's good for the church to do social justice? Yes, I do. 
In fact, you're going to hear about a new initiative that we're starting in the, in the coming weeks, okay? With the compassion thing that we talked about at the start of the year, okay? Really excited about that. That's going to be good, okay? But at the project, we think, and I think, we don't want to get on this treadmill where we're trying to outgood everyone else. Because you know what? You're just not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be better enough than other people to persuade them to give their whole life to it. Now, at this point in time in the story in Mark, has Jesus done a bunch of really good things? Heck yeah. Yeah, like heaps. Like if you did those things, you'd think revival should be breaking out in Toowoomba. He's healing sick people. He's casting out demons. He's hanging out with bad people. He's just doing all this stuff. You just go, he is a really, really good guy. And you know what? Revival's not breaking out. (laughs) Which gives you a bit of a tip, a bit of a hint. It's going to take more than just being good to win people over. What's Jesus doing in the synagogue? He's teaching, right? Because your words are going to have to match up with your actions, but they're actually your words that are actually going to make a claim on people's lives. Because that's exactly what's happening with Jesus. His words are making a claim on people's lives uh, as he speaks. You see, there's a way in which words have a way of being divisive in a way that someone's actions aren't necessarily it's when 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 you speak when you communicate people's thoughts actually come on display and that's what jesus is doing he's done a lot of the healing stuff and he's going to keep doing a lot of the healing stuff but he's making a claim on people and some of you probably don't have any rejection because you don't say stuff you're stuck in the trying to be gooder and people around you and God would have you to say some things but just beware when you say things you open yourself up more strongly to rejection because that's exactly what happened to Jesus you might be someone who avoids conflict you might not say anything and so you don't have rejection God I think would call you to be like Christ and say things and risk rejection you see it's Jesus's words that make a claim on people's lives and the people at Nazareth are they impressed well, not at the end, but are they impressed at the start? Yeah, they are. They're really impressed at the start. This, this guy is making it happen. Now, you think about the uh, synagogues and the Jewish um, uh, religious kind of construct at the time, and you better believe there was, that was pretty crammed with people who had done the study and they were able to speak. So for Jesus to kind of come in and them just go, man, this is something different, that's a big call. He must have been in form in a big way uh, when he was speaking there. You know, and what you would expect is if you had someone from the hometown who came back home and he was really good, you'd expect people to go, yeah, a bit of rah-rah for you, man. You're doing really well, wouldn't you? It's like we would probably... I, I wonder sometimes because, if, you know, Australians love the underdog, right? Like if Nazareth was in Australia, we might have backed Jesus. It's a big call, I know, but do you get what I'm saying? It's like... 500 people in our town man it's like if jesus came from ring and dan right and he was kicking it in sydney and in brisbane and in new york you'd just be going yeah come on let's get into it and you well there's part of you part of me i think yeah i think we'd probably back him because he loved the underdog we love the underdog getting up and winning which is why people still support the sharks and the titans all right (laughs) um we love that sort of stuff Uh, But you know what happens here is that they don't back him. A number of uh, years ago, I think about 2010 or something, by some strange divine uh, intervention, I got invited to speak at the uh, Sunday night uh, Easter Fest combined service, which uh, was usually about 10 to 15,000 people at the time uh, would come out on Sunday nights. And uh, I had to go through an extensive kind of vetting process and kind of write out my whole talk and... But I was, I was very much entrusted with it. Now, the week before I actually spoke, uh, it was just like um, just like being in a four-wheel drive on a corrugated gravel road when you're kind of put together with bolts. And it was just like my life just kind of rattled and shook for a week. And I just felt like I was a bucket of bolts by the end of that week. I blew a whole bunch of things really badly. Um, and I just wasn't handling the pressure and the nerves of, of, of what was actually going to be coming. And... Um, by the end of it, I'm just going, look, I'm probably the last guy that, needs, that deserves to be standing up there doing this thing, but they didn't have anyone else, so <laughs> I had to do it. Now, I, I, um, 
I mean, they could have found someone, but they, you know, that was obviously what God wanted to happen. Now, I remember standing to the side of the stage and praying, and prior to that, on the on the Sunday, I think it was, I came out here and I was in my office and I was just crying out to the Lord and asking for Him to help me, and I, I just I wasn't doing that well. All right, but I can tell you this: I walked out on the stage, which people told me it's just going to be totally different because you can't see people, you can't see their faces or their eyes, you'll just see lights. And anyway. I'm there off stage and I walk out onto the stage when it's my turn. Got the timing wrong when I was supposed to walk out at the end of the song. But got out there and you know what happened? There was about 20 people, most of them students of mine at the school here, down right at the front of the stage who just cheered for me. All right? And do you know what? That's how it's meant to roll, isn't it? It's like, you know, here I'm just going, well, who the heck am I that I'm up here and there's 20 people down the bottom who are just going, go Sunday! They're cheering and yelling. I couldn't see anyone else, but I could see these 20. And you know what? In that moment, you know, what's, what's, your, uh, what's my response? They're with me. They're with me, you know. There, there was, in the lead up to that, a real sense of kind of loneliness, but in that moment, they were with me. But for Jesus, they're not with him. In fact, they took offence at him. They didn't like what he said and they stumbled over it and this in a sense is just a continuation of the normal experience of Jesus and what's interesting about this response is it's not just the townspeople it's actually Jesus's own family as well listen to this from Mark 6 verse 4 a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household this was a well-known saying in lots of different contexts a wise saying excuse me you know what our version of it is familiarity breeds contempt which really means the better we know people the more likely we are to find fault with them isn't it that's kind of how it rolls so Jesus's own family are rejecting him in fact if you go back to Mark 3 his family come and try to take him away because they think he's insane his brothers didn't even believe in him John 7 verse 5 listen to this for not even his brothers believed in him. So his brothers didn't believe in him. His family thinks he's insane. He's got in his inner circle, in the 12 disciples, he's got Judas, who we found out back in Mark 3, wants to take him out. I mean, just think about having that kind of rejection that close to you for three years, knowing that that guy's gunning for you and he's going he's to win, in a sense. He's gonna get, his agenda is going to win the day. You know, and some of us might say, if Jesus were around today doing the miracles that, that he was doing back then, I believe, I'd just, I'd just caution you, I'd just say, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure. Because what we can see here is that proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee the right response. Without faith, without active trust in Jesus, the gospel, the good news about Jesus inoculates people as much as it enlivens them. Do you know what I reckon the heart of the issue is for these people here? The heart of the issue for these people is they didn't want what God decided to give them. They wanted something different. And that, I think, is a very common issue with humanity. God condescends to be so generous and kind to us and we just go, no, I don't want that, I want that. Like a kid at Christmas time that gets given presents and you just go, well, that's not the one I wanted. Just go, well, you got it, didn't you? And, and you'll enjoy it, won't you? Yeah, but that's not the one I want. And humanity's kind of like that with God. God stoops down, he bends down to do things for us. And we go, no, I don't want it like that. And I don't want you to deliver it like that. I want you to do it like this. The rejection of Jesus here is not because God's failed to act. The rejection of Jesus is the unwillingness of the human heart to receive the way that God has condescended and acted. One of the things that's, uh, just to cap off this little section, one of the things that's uh, happening more and more in the movies is that the humanity of superheroes is coming out more and more. Have you noticed that? If you watch superhero movies, it probably started most notably with The Dark Knight, the Batman movie with Heath Ledger in it, where they started to actually get inside some of the humanity of the people who are, are these superheroes or the, the alter ego of these super, superheroes and actually just just play on that a little bit and help you to see the humanity of it. And what you see here, in a sense, with, uh, with Mark is you actually see some of Jesus' humanity here, I believe. 
second last sentence there at the bottom says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Somehow, the lack of faith and trust of the people in Jesus restricted what Jesus could actually do. And we're confronted again, as we're often confronted with in Mark, that some people who look like they're the outsiders who are never going to be on the inside end up on the inside, like the demoniac, the woman with the of blood. And those you think, no, they're on the inside, they end up on the outside, you know. And you kind of end up with a point in Mark where you're just going, well, I don't even know who's going to be on the inside and the outside anymore because it just seems to swap around. But that's kind of the nature of the way things roll. Number two, projected for doing good. I'm going to read through this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's good, yeah? Yeah? That's good, isn't it? Yeah, okay, good. He charged them not to take, um, sorry, they charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. There you go. As I mentioned before, fellas, don't wear two, just one. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Do you see this here? There's lots and lots of good things happening. We see at the end there that people are getting healed of sickness and demons are being kicked out. Um, there's lots of really good stuff happening. But yet right in the middle, what does Jesus say? He goes, here's what you do when people don't accept you. Here's what you do. Here's what you do when you get rejected. And what this actually shows you is that you can be rejected right in the middle of serving people and meeting their needs. And some of you have known that. And that stings. That really stings. When you get rejected in the middle of serving someone and trying to help them, that really, really stings. See, the word ministry actually means to meet people's needs. That's what it means. God's going to do marvellous things through people as they minister but also what's going to happen is you're going to be rejected and i just speak candidly and for myself personally it is one of the hardest things when you're a leader and i think it's not just the case when you're a leader in a church but it is one of the hardest things when you're a leader and you have to make a call on something and you're the first one to make it and there's lots of other people saying that they're with you in it but you still feel really alone walking that path and sometimes what God calls you to do sometimes in ministry, it's like, I'm on my own. I wish there was someone else with me. And there might be a chorus of people saying, we're with you, man, we're with you. But you know what? It betrays the fact that really what you're actually feeling, the experience that you're having is one of profound loneliness. And this is why I want to encourage him to get really good at encouragement. All right? Because you know this is going to happen. If you follow what Jesus has asked you to do, we better just have a storm of encouragement at church, right? True? Let's have a storm of it, right? Let's see Sunday mornings and getting together in community groups and when we get together relationally, let's just see that as I've got to put ballast in someone else's soul so they can go out and do everything God wants them to do and keep going even when they get rejected. True? And I'm not just... Leave me out, right? Conflict of interest here. Let me speak on behalf of everyone who serves in the project. Why don't you just, you probably already do it, right? I'm just saying do it more. Just encourage them. Just encourage them. So when people come back from looking after project kids and they've taught kids over there about Jesus, just say, man, I think it's amazing. I think it's so amazing that you're over there and you're just teaching kids about Jesus. That is so precious. Do you know how precious that is? I want to pray a blessing on you. That's not that hard. Just bless them. And when you see Nathan lead worship, Nathan Hitsky, Nathan Gilmore, just pour encouragement on them. And you know one thing, uh, we're talking about this at Helping Relationships, our bib counselling course we're doing Thursday nights. We're talking about this then. You know, encourage people without having a qualifier or a caveat. Because <laughs> we kind of do that, right? It's like, you're really good at something, but I'm just going to pull up there and just put a qualifier in because I don't want you to get a big head. Do you know what I'm saying? One of the lines I, I said on Thursday night is like, just set the dogs loose, right? Let the encouragement dogs get loose and let them do whatever they want to do, all right? And the other thing, which is what we all know also, is the fact that it's hard to receive encouragement sometimes, isn't it? So let's get really good at giving it. Let's get really good at receiving it. I mean, people need to come to the project, don't they? And they come and they just go, they walk away and they just think, 
What the heck was that place? My God, like they just took me up 10 notches. They were so encouraging, so positive, so, you know, pushing me into stuff that I was scared of. You know, that's what encouragement is. It's giving someone courage to face stuff uh, that they're nervous about or they're struggling with. And I'm not saying that we don't do it. I just want us to get better at it. Is anyone with me on that? Let's just get really good at it. Even when we disagree, let's say to each other, I'm still with you. Even when we disagree with each other, we still say to each other, I'm still backing you. Even when we offend each other. Now, it's probably an absolute certainty that I've offended some of you at least, if not all, at some point in time. Especially people who live in Ringadin. <laughs> so here's the reality, right? We're just going to offend each other, but we need to get good at just saying, I'm still with you. Even when you offend me, I'm still with you. I am for you and I'm moving toward you just be aware of that and it's not just for people who have got official leadership positions in the church this is everyone that's serving God come on let's get around each other and encourage each other and bless each other and propel one another to do even better stuff than what we're doing you with me let's do that because there's good stuff out there and sometimes ministry is really really difficult as we see in this in this passage um I think if, uh, you know, my dad was a Presbyterian pastor my whole life and there were some really, really brutal times for my dad, all right? And churches can be very, very cruel places. Um, but I've also seen the power of people coming alongside my dad and supporting him and encouraging him, all right? And that's not anything about anything except just be that person, can you? You do that? I mean, just do it for me. <laughs> you know, I think God would have you do it, but just be that person. Just come alongside them. Like, you don't have to agree with everything that they say. I don't think anyone agrees with everything I say. All right? That's okay. And I'm not even saying that you've got to do it to me. I don't want to line up necessarily a 10 people who are coming up and doing it. But do you get my point? Like, find Helen. Send Helen a text. Just bless her. And just encourage her for what she's doing. Send Nathan Gilmore, Nathan Hitsky a text. Give him a call. Do something. Send Diff a text. You know, someone's serving, maybe the sound guy's up the back. What are they doing? Well, they're sitting up the back there and they're doing sound. And maybe you don't even notice it. Well, just go and bless them. Just say, good on you, man. We really appreciate it. You helped me to connect with Jesus today. And just encourage them. Is that cool? Well, let's just get really good at it. You probably already do it, all right? But uh, just putting it out there. All right, number three. The ultimate rejection. Now, we're gonna, I'm just going to read through most of this again. I know I read through it before, but it's a, it's a very interesting story. And um, uh, I just want to explain a few things as we go. Herod. Now, there's four Herods. All right. So this is uh, Herod Antipas, who uh, was Herod for, from 4 BC through till about 30-something, 30 36, 36 or something. Don't quote me on that, but that, this is him. Herod, who had sent and seized John the Baptist and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. But John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Let me explain this to you. Herod Antipas had been married to the daughter of the Nabatean king, Aratus IV. All right, let me tell you this. It looks like Caesar Augustus set up an arranged marriage for Herod Antipas, all right, to, um, I can't even, I haven't got a name here. Anyway, set up an arranged marriage and it was the daughter of uh, the Arab king on the western side of uh, the Roman Empire, okay? So it looks like August, uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, his plan was to set up an arranged marriage and then I can get myself a buffer zone between the Arabs and my empire, Okay, um, it looks like that was done before Caesar Augustus's death in AD 14. AD 29, Josephus tells us, the uh, Jewish historian of the day, tells us that um, Herod Antipas went um, and visited his brother Herod Philip, who apparently lived in one of the coastal cities of Palestine, right? So he goes to visit his brother and he obviously has a look at his brother's wife and thinks she's a bit of a hottie. Or maybe they have some, you know, if you're this kind of person, they had some very stimulating intellectual conversation somewhere and that was uh, the catalyst for them. But the, the, the bottom line was that uh, Herod Antipas actually fell in love with his brother's wife who 
interestingly, was also Herod Antipas's niece. Um, so some of you might be going, this is one twist, twisted kind of family. And it was. All right? One commentator actually said about the, the Herodian dynasty that it had more, as many twists in it as an olive tree's trunk. <laughs> uh, it was a very, very twisted place. So what actually happened is uh, Herod Antipas's first wife runs back to an Arabian king's father um, because of what's happened with this other one. He gets upset about it, and this is a bit of a side issue, but he ends up coming and attacking and obliterating Herod's army some, somewhere about 35 or 36 uh, AD, somewhere around that. Uh, and what happens is basically Herod marries Herodias. And what's happening with John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist is just standing up and he's just going, no, what you're doing is not right. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be marrying your brother's wife, especially when your brother's still alive. Uh, there was some kind of Levite law, which we're not going um, to look into at this point in time, but he says, you shouldn't be doing that at all. This is what John the Baptist is saying. So uh, Herodias, I mean, you can see what's going on here. What's she doing? She's going, listen, I've married this Herod guy. And it's not really sealed until John the Baptist is out of here because he's a continual irritant who's saying this is an illegitimate marriage, so I've got to do something about it. So we get here, uh, but she could not. She wanted to put, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, What's happened here is John the Baptist has stood up and said, what you're doing is not right. And what's Herod done? Going to throw you in jail. I don't want to kill you, but I do want to have you in jail because he's probably concerned about some kind of political uprising. Josephus, when he writes about John the Baptist, actually says that Herod was more concerned about the political ramifications of an uprising against him rather than the moral realities. But um, he would say that, I think. <laughs> What's fascinating is when you, uh, when you go to Luke chapter 7, you get a little bit of a feel of the inter internal world of John the Baptist and what's going on inside of him. And what we actually see is that trouble, the trouble that has come upon John the Baptist is starting to disorient him. Follow this with me. This is uh, Luke seven eighteen. The disciples of John reported all these things to John and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? There you go. They say the same thing twice. Do you know what's fascinating about this is if you just think back, those of you who know, what did John the Baptist actually say about Jesus the first time he met him? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist had a very profound revelation as to who Jesus was. In fact, John the Baptist baptised Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, he's standing up, this guy in some weird kind of Jedi gown thing in the wilderness eating locusts and honey, he's standing up against the ruler of the day who's a very twisted ruler and he's saying the ruler of the day is wrong. He's very courageous and yet in the middle of it, what's he doing? He's in prison and he's sending his disciples to Jesus to find out if Jesus is really the one. Do you see the battle that's going on for John at this point? Is it a battle about rejection? Maybe. Let me throw a few options out for you. What's John the Baptist saying here by asking this question? Well, I think is a variety of things he might be saying. One of them, I think, is this. There's a lot on the line here, Jesus. I need to make sure you're the real deal. Maybe he's saying this. This is not what I expected to happen. This is not how it's meant to roll. The Messiah, according to Isaiah, was meant to release captives. Why am I still here? Maybe it's this. This is hard. Sometimes I just don't know anymore. Was he depressed? Was it doubt? Whatever it was, I think you can agree with me, it was pretty tough for him. It obviously got to him. Jesus, in his grace, in front of his disciples, heals a whole bunch of people and he sends him back, sends him back and says, just go and tell him what you just saw, can you? <laughs> it's like, there's your answer. So Jesus is really gracious to him. But you can see the struggle of John. You know, he might have been very bold in speaking out against Herod, but there is a real genuine struggle going on there. Let's keep going. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Now, we don't know what kind of dance this was. It obviously, clearly was very, a very good dance, uh, however you define good. Uh, obviously, Herodias' mum, she wants to take John the Baptist out. It looks like the whole thing's kind of concocted, all right? So what's she doing out there? She's probably backstage before she comes out, making sure she's wearing the skanky stuff. I don't know. I mean, it looks like commentators kind of suggest it was probably quite a lewd uh, dance that was actually going on there, a, a pretty dodgy kind of dance. Um, and then we have this whole interchange with Herod where, um, you know, he's, he's just really impressed by it. And he says, look, I'll give you anything. And then the, the, uh, the daughter of Herodias says, well, give me John the Baptist. And just have a note there. Sorry, have, have a look there. Um, he says, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. That was all she asked for. The daughter came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She adds to it. Did you see that? It's not like, just give me his head. It's like, we need it done now and we want it on a plate. Bring it in here. Uh, A gruesome, gruesome situation. And what's so difficult about this situation when you think about it and you ponder it is this. It's not actually punishment for John the Baptist. It's political. That's what it's about. Because even if it's not the political thing about the fact there might be an uprising, he's in the middle with all these really important people and he wants to keep them happy. And he's just said something and his, his wife's daughter has said she wants him to do something and now he's stuck. He's got to do something. So here you've got a man's life, John the Baptist, on a whim because of a sexy dance probably and inebriated guests loses his life what price a life and it's not just execute but do it now and put it on a plate inspired by jealousy see a firing squad would have been humane wouldn't it when you think about it a head on a platter there's been a lot of talk about these guys uh, Sukumaran and Chan in the last week and it's been brutal uh, to watch what's unfolded and, uh, and disturbing for a lot of people. Maybe not for you, maybe you think they deserve it, uh, but it's been disturbing for a lot of people. These guys at some level were executed for doing something evil. But you know why I think there was such an outcry in Australia is because these guys appeared to be reformed. They changed. They kind of went from being really, really bad people to being really really good people they started poorly but it seems like they ended up being good men yet john the baptist was described by jesus as the greatest born of women and he lost his life in a cocktail wager josephus tells us that this is where john the baptist was executed at machiris had views of the Dead Sea in the palace there. If Chan and Sukumaran have endeared themselves to the Australian public because of their character, let me take a few moments to try and endear John the Baptist to you because it's a far bigger tragedy. He started out slowly. I mean, camel hair, leather belt, locusts and wild honey, it's probably not a particularly flashing start, all right? But it's a start nonetheless. He gets going. You know what happens? He's got multitudes coming out to him to confess their sins and be baptised by him. Multitudes of people listen to him. Multitudes of people turn back to God because of him. Luke 1 verse 14 tells us before he's even born that he's going to be great before the Lord, that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, that he's going to turn many back to the Lord. And you know what he preached? He preached that everyone needs to share their food and their clothes. That's pretty good, isn't it? What a good guy. He's got lots of people coming out to him. They're coming out, they're getting baptised, they're turning to God and he's going, right are you lot, get in there and share your food and your clothes. It's like, let's kill him. Doesn't make sense, does it? And then Jesus shows up and you know what he says? He says, I'm not even good enough to untie his sandal, which was a job that was reserved for the lowliest servant. We'd like him in Australia, wouldn't we? 
It's like with the tall poppy syndrome in Australia. A guy like this, you just go, yeah, like he could live with us. He, maybe he's Australian. Maybe he doesn't have the nose to be Australian. Maybe I don't. He preached good news to people, Luke tells us. And then we get this, which I just mentioned before. We get Jesus saying, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Just stop there for a minute. Jesus said, among those born of women, this is Matthew eleven eleven, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Like just, it's like, like for us, who are you putting at the top of the tree? Who are you putting? Like Jesus, right? Okay, Jesus, Mary and God. No, I'm kidding. It's always a Sunday school answer. You put Jesus up there, right? What's Jesus saying? He's going, right, number two, John the Baptist. Outscores everyone. Everyone else in the whole of human history, like if you're sitting here today and you just go, yeah, I want a better John the Baptist, I'm just going, no chance, all right? You're going to have a very depressing, disappointing life because <laughs> he's just there. He's gone at the top of the pile there. And though he was the greatest, he actually made clear that he wasn't the Christ. Listen to his description of himself and then I'll put it in Australian lingo. He says, he's not a prophet, but one crying out in the wilderness. You would like this guy, all right? It's, if he was Australian, he'd, he'd say, look, I'm not Jesus, but I'm just a dude that's just shouting in the bush. <laughs> I'm shouting in the bush. I'm shouting out in the bush. That's all I am. And he said this about Jesus. He said, you know, when there was a bit of a thought there that maybe John was losing some of his um, mojo, he said, well, listen, it's not about my mojo. He said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He's a good guy. And I would say to you this morning, let the world hate you because you're like this guy. True? Let the world reject you because you're like this guy. Not because you're irritating. (laughs) So the question I want to ask you now is this. And this is a good question for us. So why did he challenge Herod? What's he doing? If Herod's dynasty was so twisted, we in Australia, maybe in Christendom in Australia, might even just say, why bother? Why bother? It's not going to do anything. won't do any good. But you know what? That is not John's logic. Listen to a commentator on John the Baptist, uh, J.R. Edwards. He says this, John was a prophet without price. His thundering call exposed unrighteousness in any quarter. Like the courageous prophets before him, John understood that the proclamation of God's word included moral responsibility. There were no sacred cows in his herds. (laughs) That's a great line. He did not read the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interests, nor did he predicate what he said and did on chances of success. John's was a costly courage. In so doing, he risked a swift end, which eventually came from a cold sword wielded by petty functionaries Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man that was born in England and he happened to live through the time of uh, Hitler and the Nazis he grew up in Germany he's an incredibly intelligent man he actually finished his doctoral thesis by the time he was 21 in 1933 uh, there was a pivotal event that happened where uh, Bonhoeffer was on the radio And he flayed the German people because of the way that they were turning Hitler into an idol. The broadcast was cut off and wasn't finished. He had the opportunity to go to England, but then got a call to go and work in an underground Bible college in Germany in the times of Hitler. What would he do? Well, it was a no-brainer for Bonhoeffer. He went back. He went back. He eventually was arrested by the Germans. I think initially he was arrested because he was trying to help seven Jews escape. And after they arrested him, they found out that he was actually part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. And what's fascinating about this development is for a number of years, Bonhoeffer was very much a committed pacifist. But he went back to Germany and back into the heat and actually got involved in in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. He was in jail for a year and a half and he was hanged at Flossenburg just two weeks before the Allies liberated the camp 
two weeks. Listen to what Bonhoeffer said. Bonhoeffer's stuff is just sensational. And the reason why it's sensational is because it's formed in a crucible of some really intense times. So he doesn't give you cheap stuff. He's thinking through theology well and he's thinking about its application in the middle of something that's very, very difficult. And that's why it's so valuable. Here's what he says. The sin of respectable people reveals itself in flight from responsibility. Now, it's difficult. And uh, Bonhoeffer, I think, took a long time to get to the point where he was prepared to be part of an assassination attempt on Hitler. Timing and delivery of what God wants you to do that might actually bring about rejection is very, very difficult. And I just spoke with some people after the first service about that very thing. But it may be, it may be that for us, our big challenge is avoiding the responsibility, avoiding the things that God's calling us to, avoiding saying the things that he wants us to say because we fear rejection. I think when it comes to rejection, there's at least three different types of people. There's people who don't ever want to be rejected. They want a nice life without trouble. And I would just caution them, I'd warn them to be careful because that's not the kind of life that Jesus lived. Jesus didn't live a nice life without trouble. And he said that if I get into trouble for the life I live, be prepared that you're going to get into trouble if you follow me. If you want to live a nice life without trouble, a nice life without being rejected, I just want to warn you, you may not actually be following him. Because he didn't do that. He may not really be with you. And you may not really be with him. And then there's maybe some people here, I don't know, certainly is in Christendom, there's some people who love being rejected. They love the controversial and I warn those people, you, you're offensive. It's not your message that's offensive. You're offensive. You need to find a delivery and a timing that's right for the things that you say instead of reveling in being offensive. It's not your message that's offensive. It's you. And I would challenge all of us, let's just check ourselves and make sure that we're incarnating Jesus and not just on our own agenda when we speak to people. These people tend to love being judgmental they love to criticise other people. They love the one-upmanship that kind of comes from that. Let me encourage you to be this kind of person. Be the John the Baptist type. Be the John the Baptist type. Be the one that's loving. <laughs> be the one that's Jesus-centred. Be the he must increase and I must decrease type of person. Be that person. Yeah, be the one that speaks up like John the Baptist does, but speak up with the character of John the Baptist as well as with the words of John the Baptist. Be someone who's for the glory of God and for the good of people. Be one of those people. And some of you, maybe you sit there today and you think, I just want to set everything up so I don't have any rejection. Maybe you sit there and you don't have any rejection. Maybe you're sitting there and you just go, I think, as far as I can tell, everyone likes me and I'm not struggling with any kind of rejection and it's been like that for a while. We've been in a pretty good season for a while. Well, just let me warn you. Jesus made this statement in Luke 6:26. He said this, he said, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, I'll be honest, there's been times when I've preached and I have loved being controversial more than I've loved Jesus. And that's my, that's my failing. But do you know something? If everyone likes everything that I say all the time, that's a really bad sign. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a really bad sign. And there might be some things I've said today. Maybe it's the message and it's a bit irritating. And if it is, I'll just think, hopefully it's going to be like a piece of sand in a clam and we're going to end up with a pearl at some point in time. All right? Uh, maybe it's me. If it's me... I can understand it. I irritate myself. <laughs> All right? But listen, beware if you don't have any rejection because of Jesus. It may be that you're not following him.
So what do you do? What do you do when your supporters reject you? What do you do when your family rejects you? What do you do when your husband or your wife is not with you? They're not on the same page. When Jesus is calling you on and they won't go with you, what do you do? Well, do you know that's really, really difficult? And one of the things that I've often heard from people is how God's calling me on, but my spouse is not there with me. Now, the way that you deliver that, I'm not saying that you leave your spouse, right? I'm not saying that for a minute, but I am saying that you need to listen to the call from Jesus and find out a way to keep following Jesus whilst loving your your partner. But, you know, that kind of stuff happens in life, doesn't it? Or you can be really, really good friends with some people and then all of a sudden God starts taking you on a track and they're just going, no, I'm not on that one. I'm not on that track. So what do you do? Are you going to pull back next to them and stay with them? Or are you going to keep following Jesus and kind of part ways a bit? And I'm not saying for a second, like, you can just kind of go, oh, they don't agree with me, so I'm just going to go off and do this thing and they're not with Jesus and... Don't say that stuff because I think God's call is that we always need to keep moving back toward each other. But I'm talking about after you've been through the process, you've moved back and back and back and back and you've tried to sort stuff out and it just becomes clear that you're just going somewhere different to them. What do you do when your best friend rejects you? They say something to you like, you're too radical, man. Not that anyone says that word that much anymore, but you know what I'm saying? You're too serious about this thing, man. You're taking all the fun out of fundamentalism, you know. What do you do when Jesus is calling you on a different path and you part ways with people? What do you do when people criticise you when you serve Jesus? What do you do? What do you do when people say you're too radical? What do you do when no one else is serving Jesus the way that you think Jesus ought to be served? What do you do when no one else is telling those people about Jesus like you are and you're on your own? What do you do when you get into trouble for standing up for what is right? What do you do when your neck is on the chopping block? For some of you, your heart aches with loneliness and you're tired of aloneness and rejection. And I want to say to you this morning, Jesus gets you. He gets you. He understands you. He knows what it is like for you and then some. Listen to what was said 800 years before Jesus came in Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Listen to this sentence. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. His home team rejected him. Of anyone that should have accepted him, it was his people when he showed up, but they didn't. And you know what? Jesus is actually the only one in history that has ever been completely alone. You see, what happened on the cross is that Jesus took all of our sin, all of our disobedience to him, and he became, in a sense, repulsive to his own family. So much so that it separated him from his father. And he cried out on the cross. You remember that cry? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the only one who's ever been truly alone. So that you will never ever be truly alone. You see, you could have every other relationship in the world. But without him, you'd be empty. It was him that paved the way. For the writer of Hebrews to say this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I would say to you today, take the risk. Be with that God. (laughs) Be with him. Walk with him. I want to close with a quote from an English officer who was imprisoned with Bonhoeffer just prior to his death. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. Listen to this. 
Listen to this reverb. Let it reverberate in your soul. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8th, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and he spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions it brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners, the gallows. Before I read the last bit, think about what he just said at the top there. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. Do you know he's going to stand on gallows on his own? But he's not going to be alone, is he? Because he cultivated that. And the thing that mattered to him was that he was with Jesus. Listen to what he says. We said goodbye to him. He took me aside. This is the end. But for me... It's just the beginning of life. The next day he was hanged in Flossenburg. You can do that. That's not beyond you. You could be rejected to the point of losing your life and you wouldn't be alone. Mm. 